For those of us who aspire to do creative work, the grass always seems to be greener elsewhere. We're convinced that somewhere in this big wide world, others have it easier than we do. Maybe they work for companies that enable creativity and don't block it at every turn. Or they have an amazing list of clients that just trust them and cares about their craft like they do. Or maybe we assume that we work in an industry that's less creative than someone else's. Whatever the case, whatever we believe, we still think that creative paradise is out there somewhere. But then we look around our world, our job, our company, our clients, or our industry, and all we see is stuff that's broken. Why are we all like that to some degree? There's a certain defiance to wanting to be creative. I think it's because among all that terribleness, the corporate red tape, the industry jargon, the short-term thinking, hell, I'll just say it for any of you who are in marketing, the SEO obsession, the growth hacking, the factory mentality behind content, despite all of that, we still hope for and still see the potential to do more meaningful, more resonant work, both for us and our audiences. We see the beauty in the broken. And that's our theme today. Stick around. This episode is supported by Right Side Shirts, an organization that helps kids fully realize their creative potential. Students from first through eighth grade can submit their artwork to Right Side, and the company then turns it into t-shirts and other apparel and accessories. Not only is it an awesome affirmation of a student's creativity, but the profits from the business help fund local art programs, which are too often the first programs to get cut in schools. So check out some truly amazing creative designs and help support an even more amazing cause. Go to rightsideshirts.org. I yanked open the fridge. It's 8 p.m. and I haven't eaten a thing yet. I'm starving. Except my fridge clearly doesn't care. It's slim pickings tonight. In the crisper drawer, there's half an eggplant. It's starting to brown and the skin is starting to wrinkle. Above that, some stale bread. And really, it's just the ends of the bread. And it's more likely that I try to bludgeon someone to death with this weapon than try to eat it. There's a lemon cut in half and put in a Ziploc bag, which is now a vacation home for some mold. A hardened piece of Parmesan cheese grated down to the rind is crammed all the way in the back corner of the fridge. And in the middle of all that food is a little round Tupperware with some leftover spaghetti in it. And I can only see a few flecks of red sauce caked onto the pale pasta, hinting at dryness. Also, sadness. But sad is not what I feel. I feel excited? I do. I can see it. I grab the bread. It's too stale to eat right now, but if I toast it up and maybe add some olive oil, some salt and pepper, maybe a little oregano, it's got potential. I start preheating the oven. Then I take out the eggplant. I cut away the brown part and cut away the edges where it's starting to wilt and slice up the rest. I fire up the stove and I fry the eggplant with some oil. My next victims are the pasta and the parm. I shave off what little cheese is left on the rind onto the pasta and I zap it all in the microwave. When it's done, I take out the pasta, now containing some warm, melty cheese in it, and I bunch it into a small ball on my plate. I then get the eggplant slices and drape it right over it and voila, dinner is served. From refrigerator sadness 
to a delicious meal. Bet nobody's ever done that before. Actually, as it turns out, uh, this is a real dish called pasta a la norma. But whatever, I felt like a hero in the moment. Also, I bet you didn't think you'd get a recipe out of this episode, huh? Anyways, my point is, as I was looking at that fridge, I didn't see what was clearly so depressing right in front of me. I saw past that terrible situation and instead focused on what could emerge. We do this all the time in our work as creators. We don't just see what's right there in front of us, the, the bland customer testimonial, the copycat brand message, the same old, same old type of content that we have to do yet again. We don't just look at all that and say, well, guess that's what I'm making today. No, we see past it, beyond it, to what it could be. We imagine the potential. We're in our own little creative kitchens going, oh, if you just take this thing and then chop it here, and then that thing and shave it off right there. Oh, and and I saw someone try this once, and I can add a pinch of that, and then bam, it's actually pretty awesome. Because let's get real, we're often in the business of saving things that start out looking pretty grim. It's like we're trying to protect our audiences from what our companies or clients initially wanted to put out into the world. Sometimes that might be an idea from a corporate setting, like make sure we talk about how we offer best in breed in the jargon industry for the most jargons and jargon, 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 jargon. Other times we're trying to save something that others know is starting in a terrible place. Like my favorite saying that people give us as creators, which is just have fun with it. And then they show us a playground equipment that's all rusty and broken and some weed covered fields. Wait, is favorite part the right word? Anyways, this ability that we have to see past what's right in front of us to what something could be, lets us create something great when others settle. It lets us do what others would call, well, you know, unthinkable. Welcome to Unthinkable, a show for people who care about the craft and creativity of their work in the business world. In our last big episode, we talked about the theme 2% better and how creative people will spend huge amounts of time on that small little improvement since it actually makes all the difference. And we concluded in that episode that the ability to do that, to agonize and obsess over our work like that, it all requires the right environment. But even if the environment is great, the stuff that we take with us into that space to start to create our work can often be less than ideal. The task might seem impossible, the project beyond saving, or the politics at our company are too crazy. So today, we're exploring this idea of how and why we as creative people can see the potential for things, despite them starting out as, eh, not so great. Joe Lacob watched in horror as nearly 20,000 people booed and jeered at him. He was standing alone, with the spotlight on him, gripping a microphone in one hand and a slip of paper in the other, both for dear life. It was March of 2012, and Lacob, the owner of the NBA's Golden State Warriors, was trying to deliver a speech before a game in honor of Chris Mullen, the Hall of Fame Warriors player whose jersey was about to get retired that day. But as soon as Lacob took the mic, the fans lost it. They'd had enough. After years of supporting a terrible, struggling franchise, They just watched their very best player, a lightning-quick scorer named Monta Ellis, get traded for Andrew Bogut, 
a center who, despite being talented, was often injured. That was too much for the fans to handle, and so they were raining down boos on their owner. The booing got so bad, in fact, that Rick Barry, a former Warriors player who was on hand for the ceremony, had to grab the mic and shout down the crowd just to let it finish. When Lacob bought the team in 2010, he'd stated publicly that the Warriors would win a championship within five years. And in that moment, it seemed impossible. But if you fast forward to the 2014-2015 season, the Golden State Warriors did just that. They weren't laughingstocks anymore. They were champions. And Lacob, well, he's become a model for how to own and manage an NBA team. The New York Times recently did a huge feature piece all about Lacob and his management style. And the entire league is now orienting everything they do, from drafting and acquiring players to structuring offenses and defenses, all based on how the Warriors play. Suddenly, that $450 million purchase that Lacob and his fellow investors made seemed like a bargain. When various groups were bidding for the team at that point, all they saw was a mess of a franchise with a terrible roster and a subpar location. Oakland, the less attractive sibling to San Francisco, at least at that time. But Lakeup saw that as an opportunity, the reason to buy. And once he bought, he got creative. He rethought the entire management structure. He hired a general manager who had zero experience before running an NBA team. And he surrounded himself with a diversity of smart minds from all walks of life because creativity, after all, is the ability to combine seemingly disconnected things. The team, just like Lacob, also started to acquire things that felt, well, broken. Namely, their players. There's Sean Livingston, a spindly guard who broke his leg so badly a few years ago that doctors wanted to amputate it. He should never have played basketball ever again, and yet he beat the odds and was a contributor on the Warriors championship team. There's Festus Azili, a 6-foot, 11-inch center who didn't start playing basketball until he was 19. Clay Thompson, one of the purest shooters in the league, barely had any Division I scholarships. This year, by the way, he won the NBA All-Star Weekend three-point shootout. Then there's Draymond Green, a Warriors draft pick who was buried in the second round when they picked him up. A guy stuck between positions with the height of a guard and the body type of a power forward. For the past two seasons, he's been in the running for the Defensive Player of the Year and the MVP. And then there's Stephen Curry, widely considered to be the best current player in the NBA. And certainly, he's the most electrifying. Now, I'm a huge NBA fan, and I literally can't tell you in under 20 minutes how insane it is to watch Steph Curry play. And I've witnessed Michael Jordan. Curry played college ball at Davidson, a Division I school most people would probably guess is Division III. And entering the NBA, scouting reports told people to avoid him at all costs. He was too small, too weak, too injury prone. But during the Warriors championship run last season, Curry was named the MVP of the entire league. And for the past four seasons, he's set the league standard in three-point shooting. In fact, this season, 2015-16, he broke the record for most threes made in a season. In February... They still had over a month left in the season, and he set the all-time record. He finished with 400 threes this season. No other player has ever hit even 300. Oh, and uh, the record he broke this year? Yeah, the previous record was his. And all of this, the management style, the ravenous fans, the awards, the records, the winning, Lacob talks to the media about it all 
like it was inevitable, like he saw this happening from the very beginning, despite how terrible those beginnings were. This past season, the Warriors became the most winning team in the history of the league. They won 73 games. A full season is just 82. As of this recording, they're the number one seed in the Western Conference, and they're vying for their second straight championship. They have a roster full of exciting talent, a hardcore fan base, and millions of others who buy their merchandise and root for them despite not being anywhere close to Oakland. And of course, they have the league's most electrifying player, Steph Curry. A player who, by the way, was only ever given the chance to play when Lakeup decided to trade Ellis and suffer through all those boos all those years ago. Now, don't misunderstand. I get it. I get that when we're living this idea every single day, trying to make something out of nothing or something good out of something awful, I get that it can be frustrating. You want to blame your company. You want to blame your industry. Blame your job. Blame your boss. You want to boo all of that. But Lakeup has something that we all need. Purpose. He knew exactly where he wanted to go and why he wanted to go there. And then he could just reverse engineer the how. But it all starts with having intent, a clear purpose. So that leaves us with a big, hairy question. What if we struggle to find our purpose? One coach told me, he said that um, me and a friend of mine are entrepreneurially promiscuous. This is John Marsh. He's an entrepreneur and investor. And he's built a ton of businesses and crashed several too. And if you look at all the sheer number of industries that he's worked in, it'd be easy to assume that his career lacks clarity of purpose. Just to give you an idea how it went, I mean, it was the high-end audio business to the wrecked used car business and salvage yard to the historic renovation business to the development business to the online influence community business to the generating of content and leads business to the restaurant business to virtual and physical connections of those spaces to the communities I built, to now we're planning cities for other people who have bought whole cities. Now that makes, that is a journey that looks like a detour. And this journey took John to the place that he's called home for many years now, a small Alabama city of about 28,000 people called Opelika. O-P-E-L-I-K-A, kind of like hope you like it. It's uh, about an hour and 15 minutes south of Atlanta Airport down I-85. We're um, probably the fifth fastest growing place for our size in the nation. It's really unique because it's a, a twin cities. It's our city and Auburn University, Auburn, Alabama, kind of merged together. And it's a community of about 100,000 people that are textile and railroad town in its past. So we were the wild, wild west. At one time, they used to come through on the trains in the 1800s, and they'd duck under the windows so you wouldn't get shot when you were coming through. So it was a, at one time, it was a really a wild place. And uh, now it's really a place where people have an opportunity to build and make things and start things that may not be as easy to do other places in the country. John's not from here originally, but his goal, he says, is to make this city a place to come, build, and stay. We feel like we kind of steward 10 blocks of our city. We see that, you know, that area as being something that we're responsible and, and, uh, and care about deeply. So we've restored 120 houses and, and created over 40 businesses either 
that we've owned or been a part of helping create in that that small area, 10 blocks over 20 years. But while today it feels like John is living with intent, living with purpose, that wasn't always the case. You know, I started out working hard. About 14 years old, I said, as an, as an apprentice in the car stereo business. And by 16 years old, I'm making $1,000 a week after school, making more than my high school teacher at the time. And I got pretty hooked on that. You know, money is pretty interesting thing because if you can make some of it, people will uh, will give you some sort of uh, you know recognition for that. And um, so I got, in, got really into that. But then came the drugs. At age 17, John says all that cash led him down a dark path. Once I tried them, I liked it pretty good and went off in a life that was destructive for about uh, four or five, maybe six years. And that life, having that, plus a lot of ambition and energy toward building and making things, at 20-something years old, maybe 21, I was a million and a half dollars in debt with a partner, $99,000 overdrawn, and my marriage was failing. And... I went in the attic of my house to hang myself, and my whole life changed. And, um, you know, I I just feel like we don't change unless it hurts too bad and costs too much, or unless we get to the point that staying the same is harder than changing, or maybe third, where we can believe enough that we we can change and there's hope for our future. And That happened to me, and my whole life changed. I came back down out of that attic and decided not to take my life because— you know, it's uh, it's really, it's really a, a interesting place to want to take your own life because I think when you think I'm going to kill myself and really all you have to do is die to yourself, um, you have to you're going to have to understand that there's a purpose and a plan that if you'll uh, if you'll take it on, there can be incredible things in your life. So came back down and over a number of years reconciled my marriage and was able to work work out of that debt. Um, I feel like I'm poster child for idiots. And uh, I give idiots hope that there's a future for them. And we, we got to zero. We'd, we'd made a million and a half dollars. And so uh, we've, just, uh, we've just been truly a miracle. I mean, we're about to celebrate this year 24 years of marriage and everything I've ever dreamed of in a, in a woman I found in my wife. And um, so it's, there's hope. There's hope in any situation. Nothing's beyond, um, nothing's beyond the ability to just, hey, wake up one day and, and have a have a redeemed mindset and say, I'm I'm going to live a totally different life. And uh, so that's that's it's been a miracle. And now, ten businesses and couple you know, hundreds and hundreds of opportunities later, um, we're still going forward. And I'm I'm living a life that's quite amazing. John faced the darkest time in his life that he'd ever have to grapple with. It wasn't his work or his job or his industry that felt broken. It was him. He felt defeated and lost. But right when he was at the end of the line, right when he had enough, he realized he needed to find that grander purpose. And over the years, as he fought his way back from addiction, from debt, from a marriage on the rocks, John became obsessed with this idea of redemption. In life, absolutely, but also in how he applies his creativity and his grit and his smarts to problems that others don't seem to want to tackle. Like when he moved to Opelika with his wife. Me and my wife went into a, a junky area of town, the only place we could afford a house, and we bought this uh, house 
it was on the market for 56,000. We offered 46,000 and they almost tore our arm off. So we thought, wow, we, we must not have offered, our, our offer was not low enough. So we bought this house and it was so dirty and so nasty that my had bars on the window. My mom cried when she saw it. She said, I never thought you would live somewhere like this. So we move in and the neighborhood's full of, you know, drugs and prostitution and all this. And we start working on it in six and a half years, one paycheck at a time, hundreds of baby failures. We'd put lay down tile in a room and do it the wrong way and have to tear it up. And we would put in the toilet and not put the right venting system and it wouldn't flush it. We just did it over and over and over again, one paycheck at a time, living in 500 square foot. And when we finally finished it, we had this magnificent house that had been a training ground for us to understand how to restore historic structures. Um, and we had the privilege of learning with our own money. And uh, it ended up, we sold that house for $685,000. And guess what? We found out, you know, there's a market for that kind of stuff. That's so similar to our work. We need to find our house, our project, where we can experience all these little baby failures too. Maybe you're saying, oh, I tried to design that thing in that new way and up, oh, it didn't work out. And that's okay. I'm just going to scrap it. Or I tried to edit that song or that photo or that article and ruined it. Or maybe I tripped into a new way of doing something that I never would have thought of before. It's not a house. Maybe it's a side project. And it might not be investing our money. Maybe it's investing our time. But the experience of doing that, the embracing of these little baby failures, helps us find our purpose all the same. Sometimes we just need those moments of taking a sledgehammer to a project or a saw to an idea so that the next time we're frustrated at work or feeling lost as creators, we don't want to give up. Because it's easy to want to give up. Was there ever a time when you were going through the process of, you know, pulling out the beauty from that brokenness <laughs> and you thought, oh God, is this worth it anymore? You know, why am I doing this? I fantasized about quitting all the time. Sometimes I just wouldn't even go upstairs where I was working for weeks. I was like, forget you. You're not there. You're just a big addict. I'm never going up there again. I'm going to live in this little basement and I'm not going to think about it. I mean, it's, you know, over and over and over thousands of times. So what kept him going? One thing was I had a man that I'd met who grew up in a mill village with a high school education and ended up running the largest real estate company in the world. And he uh, he told me, he said, uh, if you want to know what's going to really change your life is finish that house. And I said, how? It doesn't matter. I mean, I'm just spending all my money buying doorknobs and toilets. And, and, you know, we paid for an HVAC system that the guy stole our money and never put it in and we had to pay for it again. Just over and over complications and problems he said you just have to finish it and there's something special about doing something a hundred percent not 99 not 96 not 93 but 100 percent and when we finished that thing a hundred percent one thing that changed is uh you know i knew i could all the way and um and it, 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 if you're fantasizing about quitting you need to get a new fantasy because we care for our craft, whether that's writing, design, photography, audio video, marketing, whatever it is, because we care, we want that big final payoff at the very end. And we can picture it up front where others might not get where we're going. And so this causes us to get super frustrated whenever we get handed the same old, same old project or feel the creativity squeezed out of us by other people and other situations. It's like, 
Why can't you just picture where we're going? I see it so clearly. Why don't you? And so we're tempted to throw our hands up and march out. But John says the key here is to shortcut our reward system. It's not about the big moment of glory at the end, but the little things that you can celebrate in the journey along the way. Being visual, you want to see something. Every time we'd stain a floor or paint a wall or finish out, you know, one thing, the trim in a room, I'd say, yes, it's worth it again. And it was just little little baby miracles, you know. Um, that's what we think oftentimes. Our, one of our hopes is that we have front row seats to miracles. But remember, miracles are not always huge. They can be minute little things. And even now, as I'm writing my first book, and I'm not a I, I mean, I didn't pay attention in English, so it's been messy. I've been two years working on this. and uh, But every day that I write a little bit more, 10 minutes, um, it's not a shame to write two minutes. It's still valuable. So um, slowly by slowly, little by little, you have to be willing to uh, to take it that way. Right. You put a little more polish here. You rub some of the dirt off there. It, it definitely <laughs> is those little tiny moments. Uh, and by the way, I was an English literature major. Um, <laughs> I can tell you with complete and total certainty that if you had majored in English or d- did well in English, <laughs> your, your writing process would be full of more agony, my friend. <laughs> so <laughs> then I've got a huge benefit. Yes, See, you do. <laughs> it's every, you know, because it, it goes back to what we're talking about, which is, you know, finding that beauty in the brokenness. If you if you think you've seen the most beautiful piece of literature or think you're capable of creating it, which, you know, let's be serious, a lot of writers fantasize about doing, um, you, you never feel like you've accomplished anything. You know, a lot of people ship their work and hate it instead of trying to find little tiny pieces of it that they're like, you know what, maybe I can't get over the hump and love the whole thing, but the way I open that piece on that emotional tilt and I know people are going to read it and I feel good about it and you know, I feel good about that one piece of it. Uh, and I think what you're speaking to is that, is like the, the projects you've worked on, it starts with this belief that there's beauty in there when others don't see it. But then it's about like piecing together these little tiny moments of victory that get you all the way to the end. Yeah. And, I, you know, momentum helps. I, I, one thing I think we have learned to do is build momentum because I need it. Momentum and encouragement um, run hand in hand. For, for us and our organization. So momentum makes you look better than you are, and no momentum makes you look worse than you are. So we just try to get something moving. We try to get a project moving, and we'll adjust and correct and get better, but um, it served us well to get momentum going, and all kinds of amazing opportunities and all kind of provision are right around the corner once you get going. And the thing you really hinted at there was it kind of all moves slow until it moves fast. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people get frustrated. They're like, they see somebody who they believe is above them on the quote unquote food chain or the the career ladder. And they think, "Uh, how do I get to be that prolific? You know, how do I get to live project to project like John? And you didn't tell me how you were like sprinting like mad and it all just clicked and magically happened. You, you walked me through one thing after another thing after another thing. And in retrospect, it seems like, wow, this all moved really quickly. How did we end up here? But in the moment, it feels like it's going slow. Yeah, it really is. It, it's, I'm disappointed about everything just about that we've accomplished. Now, it's interesting because my wife is not. I remember one time we were standing in the hall, and this gives you a perspective thing. It depends on how you're wired and how you see the world. But I said something about someone. I said, they're well off. And she said, well, we're well off. I said, oh, what are you talking about? Don't don't say that. And she's like, oh, no, we are. 
I thought, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And and it it simply showed me that whatever your expectations you set in your heart, I mean, I had a lot of really big expectations and um, expectations are unvoiced demands. I mean, we are incredibly, incredibly grateful for the things we have. I mean, we have all kinds of amazing things we get to do, but if you don't, if you don't watch it, I still feel like the same guy who didn't have enough money to buy the color paint I wanted when we started on the junkie houses. And so we mixed three colors together to get what we want out of the pile of rejects. <laughs> You've kind of pursued these opportunities that others might pass off or pass on. Um, so I'm curious to hear, you know, how do you see those opportunities when you see it as there's beauty in the brokenness? Other people might say, ah, that makes no sense or it's, it's never going to be great. You know, how do you identify that? <laughs> it's really funny because one of the guys that used to work for us in the construction business, because we do historic renovation and relocation. So we'll renovate historic structures or we'll disassemble them, move them and put them back together, unbuild them to the boards and number them, move them and put them back together. And this is a business, of course, that we had learned through doing. But he said, uh, I see the business as as being a turd polisher. <laughs> and so that gives kind of some insight to the way some folks see it. And I can see that it seems that way because you're taking really old structures that are, you know, really crooked. We know a guy doesn't know what he's doing if he gets the level out of the truck. You know, you can't do that. You, th- these structures are all, they're just half patina and they're, and they're, they're unusual and you have to have to deal with that. But I think it's we see the world as we are, not as it is. And I had the privilege of of, of crashing my life early on and um, being totally broken and then finding there's hope in that. And so now I think it just gives you a lens of hope for the rest of the world. So if you can be hopeful about your future, um, there's some power in your present to have that. John's real gift is seeing past the immediate reality to what could be. And as he says, we all see the world as we are, not as it is. That's why we get either frustrated when others don't see the potential or excited when we do. We're driven by craft, driven by purpose. But to others, it's crazy talk. It's crazy to try and make something delicious from scraps. It's crazy to build a winner out of a loser. It's crazy to fix that house, build up that city, rebuild that life. But when you have a clear purpose, it doesn't seem quite so crazy. You know, I I tell I know it has to be that you you get to the point you're willing to use your imagination as a canvas to paint the future on and tell yourself the story. If you can't get you to believe the story, nobody else is going to. Believe me, way before anything else came to pass in my heart, it, my, that story was beating and it was big. I mean, I, I get to the place and how do I know when something I feel like, whether it's picking a mentor to speak into my life or picking a project that I'm willing to invest my life into, because we are writing checks with our life and you only have so many checks. So I just make sure it speaks to my heart and not my head. What speaks to John's heart is pulling out beauty from the broken. He has clarity on that now but only because he can look back in order to look ahead. Just like Joe Lacob looked back on his time as a venture capitalist when he bought the Warriors, John Marsh looked back on his time building and crashing businesses, struggling with life and relationships, and restoring electronics and cars. And that all led him 
to restoring and redeeming entire cities. Now, it's messy. You, you, can't, you have to understand it's going to be messy if you have this kind of uh, behavior. But it's funny. There's magic along the way. You find stuff in the stuff that you never thought you would find as you're on the journey. As for what's next for John. My next season of life seems to be helping redeem cities and then helping people find meaningful work. And that's work that gives them love, dignity, and respect. And so without a, you know, that's true north for me right now where we're headed, but I have no clue how I'm going to do all that. I just know that's where I'm going. So my heightened awareness toward that, like if I was looking at new cars, if I was looking at a new BMW, I'd see them everywhere, right? Well, now I'm seeing this idea of people wanting to change their communities and to have meaningful work everywhere. I have no clue how I'm going to do that. I just know that's where I'm going. That is the sound of a man with a purpose. He may not know how he's getting there, but he has the more important part down. His driving mission, his destination. So my challenge for you this week is to answer that one simple question. Where are you going? What's your driving mission? Now, more than ever, in an era of clickbait and growth hacks and shortcut culture, we need to care about what could be. We need to care deeply about our craft and about genuine creativity. So the next time you face the status quo, a struggling team, a lousy assignment, a tone-deaf campaign, ask yourself, what could this be? What do you see that's greater and better than the reality you're presented? And maybe a more important question to ask here is actually, how will you push forward and try to get there? You may not know just yet, but if you can figure out that purpose, that driving mission behind your work, you'll find a way. Because even though you don't know how to get there, you know deep down in your bones, that's where you're going. And to a lot of people out there, that's pretty unthinkable. Unthinkable is written and hosted by me, Jay Akunzo. This episode was produced by Chris Higgins and edited by Josh Cole. Theme music for today's show was created by Tyler Decimus Litwinius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and he will have his vengeance in this life or the next. Are you not entertained? If you are, this show and its weirdo host, would greatly benefit from an iTunes rating and review. So if you leave one, then thank you. And if you don't listen on iTunes, just share the show with one person you think would like it. Just one. I'll be here waiting to bear hug them when they arrive. Also, John Marsh shared so many amazing gems that did not make the final episode, but I want to share them with our subscribers. So if you go over to unthinkable.fm and join the email list, I'll send out those clips next week. They specifically focus on the questions that John likes to ask a new person he meets and the one thing, the one small action that we can all take in our lives to build a better career. Also, big thanks to Right Side Shirts for supporting the show this week. Be sure to check out their shirts, phone cases, and watches, all with awesome designs created by students, and all profits help fund school art programs where it's needed most. Visit rightsideshirts.org to learn more. Thank you so much for listening to this show. You have a lot of options when commuting or walking your dog or working out. And I thank you for choosing Unthinkable. I'm your captain, Jay Akunzo. Talk to you in a week.